declaring the winner by knockout, Derek the Black Beast Lewis. I'm here with the winner, Derek Lewis. Derek, why'd you take your pants off? My balls was hot. I understand. I told them boys, I got no more heart. You know, they keep underestimating me. Shit, I ain't all that technical and all that, but shit, I'm getting there. Fuck it. No one will question your heart, sir, after this. I forgot a few hours before the fight, Donald Trump called me and told me I got knocked this rush motherfucker out because they're making him look bad on the news. You know, him and Putin and shit. Fuck what they're talking about, USA and his hoe. Fuck. Listen, Derek. You came into this fight, the number two contender, with that knockout. You're absolutely one of the top guys in line for a shot at the title next. So tell us what you think about that. I need to sit my black ass down and do some more cardio. Fuck what you talking about right now. I ain't trying to fight for no title right now. Not with no gas tank like that. Shit. Listen, Derek, you're one of the most entertaining guys in the sport. Congratulations on an amazing victory. This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Paul. Paul. Yeah. Guess what? What? We are now the number one leftist combat sports MMA podcast in the world. That's cool. Wait, I thought you didn't upload any episodes yet. I didn't, but we're number one by default because we're the only leftist MMA podcast. Oh. So how many of us do you think are out there? I'd say 50. 50? Yeah. So we're going to get all 50 of them. We're going to take over 100% monopolize the whole leftist MMA combat sports podcasting market. We're going to own it. Oh. (laughs) So for this UFC, I had Habib winning and Paul picked Connor to win. And so we made a bet. But instead of the typical bet where the loser has to shave off, you know, some kind of facial hair, like a mustache or a beard, we went the opposite way, the Southpaw way, which is the loser has to grow a mustache. So Paul lost, so he had to grow a mustache. So when are you going to start? I already started. When did you start? A few days ago. <laughs> Moving on. So this is the post-UFC 229 show that took place in Las Vegas on October 6th. The main event featured a lightweight championship bout between Khabib Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor. The co-main event was Tony Ferguson, the former champion, versus Anthony Pettis, another former champion in the lightweight division. So let's get right into it. Right after the main event, there was a melee where Habib jumped over the fence and tried to go after Connor's jiu-jitsu training partner. 
Dylan Dennis. And then from there, it got even uglier. But if you follow combat sports, this isn't that unusual. This happened before in other MMA events. And then you've seen this happen with the Diaz brothers multiple times. And then if you look into boxing, there's dozens and dozens of this kind of scenario. Connor did this in the UK where he jumped over the fence. Actually, I think what happened with the Connor scuffle back in the UK was his training partner won. He was overly excited. He jumped the cage and he shoved an official, which is a huge no-no, but that seemed to get swept under the rug. So these kind of things happen in combat sports. What was unusual, though, was what happened last year in Brooklyn with the whole bus fiasco where Connor and his, his entourage attacked the bus, threw a dolly at a bus. Not only did it cancel three fights, I think there was a couple fighters whose eyes got lacerated by the glass. I think one of them needed surgery and it completely fucked up Rose Namajunas. I think it was her side of the bus where the dolly went through. So she was still able to compete that night, but she was really close to taking a dolly to the face. Ray Borg, Michael Chiesa were sitting in front of Rose, so they actually took the majority of the hit. Ray needed surgery because glass got in his eyes. Chiesa got cuts on his face. And there's actually a UFC official who got hurt. So that's even way worse. So now you're hurting a UFC employee, not just a contractor like the fighters are. When I was a kid and I would stub my toe on something like a table or something, like when I was a toddler, and my mom would say, who did that? The table? And then she'd go over and start smacking the table. Look, I taught it a lesson. Okay, calm down. And it reminded me of that. With her, they were like, they were kickboxing a bus. Because not only did they throw stuff at it, but he started like punching and kicking it like like the bus was an opponent. Well, I guess if you go by damage is done, the team technically won. It reminded me of that special bonus round in Street Fighter, where it's you versus the car. And then you have 30 seconds to try to damage the car as much as you can. Connor and his team were trying to replicate that. Actually, future me, insert soundbite from that video game. Perfect. So, Paul, tell our audience, the Mighty 50, what exactly happened after the event. So, just to give a quick recap of the history of these two, as we mentioned in the Brooklyn event, Connor was there to more or less fight the winner of Tony Ferguson versus Habib Nurmagomedov. But... Tony, unfortunately, had a freak incident where he hurt his knee, couldn't fight, and they had to scramble for a last-minute opponent. But it was compounded by the fact that Habib's team was always needling Connor, calling him McChicken, and saying that he's too scared to fight him. And eventually, flash forward to the pressers before UFC 229 when they were announced to fight, Connor would go on to attack Habib's management team, his father, his country, his family, his training partners, and Habib, his religion. And his religion. So Habib isn't one of those fighters that I think truly understands the promotional aspect of fighting. He's used to taking you at your word. So if you say certain things, he's not going to understand that as hyperbole. I don't want to put words in his mouth. But when he was asked earlier, 
do you think after the fight, you'll shake hands and you could be friends? He said, no, I can't do that. I can't let him get away with what he said. And at the very least, credit to him, he's a man of his word. Because when that fight was over, he threw his mouthpiece at Connor's corner, pointed at his training partner, Dylan Dennis. And even though he was held back by Nevada State Athletic officials, he jumped the cage. He just went straight up Donkey Kong smash right into the crowd to hit Dylan. They got separated. And then Connor's looking back because he's not quite sure 100% what happened. And he gets sucker punched by one of Habib's teammates. And then a brawl just breaks out. Actually, the UFC initially was trying to make it seem like Connor was some Zen master who was calm because that's what the broadcast was showing after the melee. But Connor, as soon as it happened, also jumped up onto the cage and was going to jump out and start joining in on the brawl. And then one of Khabib's guys ran over to stop him. And then it was Connor who swung at him. And then that guy swung back. And that's how they started fighting. So everybody's blaming Habib's guy, but it was actually still Connor who threw the first punch. But actually, more shit happened after that. After Connor and Habib's cornerman got separated from that on cage scuffle, another guy came from nowhere, just like in pro wrestling, jumped the cage and sucker punched Connor. And that's what everyone else saw. Because everybody says Connor is practicing stuff or mimicking stuff from pro wrestling. But if he had really studied pro wrestling, he would know. Now it turned him from a singles match into Royal Rumble. So some new guy at any time can run down the ramp into the ring. And then you got to be ready. Otherwise, they're going to start hitting you because that's the rules now. So it went from singles match for the title into a Royal Rumble match. And that kind of stuff happens in sports entertainment. Connor's lucky he just didn't get chokeslammed. So they're lucky they're not in the WWE, man. You'd have like these seven foot giants coming in and sucker punching you. So I think there was a moment when Connor had that look in his eyes where he was genuinely confused because in Connor's mind, everything was for the buildup for the fight. And afterwards, they can more or less shake hands, lick their wounds and try to come back and see if rematch is available and what the turnaround would be. But instead, a melee broke out. Habib's a real gangster. I don't know what his upbringing was like in Dagestan, but there are videos of him as a kid wrestling a bear. So he grew up wrestling bears since he was three or four. This isn't a joke. You could look this up. Connor is known as Mystic Mac because he predicts things. He says it and then it comes true. But between Habib and Connor, Habib's the real man of his word. If he says he's going to do something, he does it. If you tell him something and he says, I don't need the media there. I'll handle it on my own. He means it. So even when Artem Lobov, Conor McGregor's training partner, mentioned Habib in a interview with Russia and said some things that were not so nice, Habib found Artem in a hallway by himself and he just walked up to him and just told him, don't ever fucking talk about me. I think he slapped him around a little bit and he didn't know anybody was watching. He didn't do it for the camera where Connor will only do things if the camera is there. Otherwise, everybody who says they run into Connor in the back, they just, he just walks past you. He doesn't care. He's only in it for the promotion. It's not like all of a sudden he turns into a nice guy in the back. 
he doesn't have time to bother with you. But if it's part of the promotion, he will. Habib's not like that. So he said after the fight, he's not going to shake hands. He said he was going to smash Connor. He doesn't do it as a performance. This is just how he is. So he doesn't quite understand the whole fight game. So if you say something to him, he takes it personal. He thinks you're being serious. And then he's going to do what he does. And so he did what he does against Dylan Dennis. And the thing is, everybody in the jiu-jitsu and grappling and even in combat sports, they know Dylan. And everybody understood what Habib did because everybody hates Dylan Dennis. I mean, he's so hated that his own school, Marcelo Garcia Academy, kicked him out. Nobody likes this guy except Connor and his crew. Has that ever happened before when Marcelo universally recognized as the nicest guy in jiu-jitsu has kicked somebody out? Never. And I think also Dylan has almost gotten into fights like this in grappling events, in smaller MMA events. And he's even talked about it in interviews, how much people hate him. He calls them haters, but regardless, they just don't like the guy because... In the world of asshole, he's very well respected. He's one of the best. So in that regard, he's pound for pound great at something. He's just not well known. But with that said, I don't think anybody is more calm under the bright lights and the chaos like Connor. Most people get nervous when there's that many people, that much pressure. Connor loves it. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's so hard to fight. It's not a style matchup only. It's also the chaos he's going to bring with the media. And can you handle that? And most people have skills, but they can't execute their skills under all that chaos that he brings with the media, with the fans, with the shit talk. So when you're fighting him, you're fighting him and the media circus at the same time. And you saw Jose Aldo fight out of character. You see a lot of people fight out of character because they can't handle it. And it's the same thing Floyd Mayweather brings into a fight. Except I think Floyd does it even better than Connor. And that even Connor said he's never seen a fighter with such composure like Floyd. So Floyd had better composure than Connor, where Connor is known as the composure guy under the media chaos. And in MMA, Connor is the best. And maybe when he fights as many fights as Floyd one day, he will be just as good as him as far as being calm under pressure. So I know a lot of fighters will talk about their conditioning training and their stamina, how they can go five rounds, not get tired. Tony is famous for it. Habib is famous for it. But what a lot of fighters don't seem to do or prepare for is the mental side where their cardio, quote unquote, in that regard is very short and intense. They're used to answering maybe five, six, seven questions. But when it gets prolonged and they're asked uncomfortable truths about their styles, their records, and how they handle trash talk, that's when you get to see the mental holes in their game. And that's what Connor is so good at exposing. He knows that if the presser gets dragged on longer and longer and longer, you're in his world. So you went into it thinking Connor was going to win. I went into it thinking Habib was going to win. Tell us about what you saw that made you think Connor was going to go in and win this fight. So there's a couple things that Connor does very well that I thought lines up perfectly with what Habib doesn't do very well. One of the things that I noticed that with Connor was his style of takedown defense isn't necessarily based off a very anti-wrestling or sprawl-based style. 
where he'll use the traditional Jose Aldo of I'll give you the lead leg and limp leg out of it, but more of he will use that pawing right hand to gauge whether you're going to strike or whether you're going to shoot in on him. That's what he was able to do against Eddie Alvarez. That's what he was able to do against Chad Mendez. Guys that he knew, okay, you're a wrestler slash boxer. How are you going to come and attack me? And Habib, for the most part, will try to bull rush you against the cage, clasp his hands, whether he gets a single leg or a double, and just smash you from there. And Connor operates very well in the open. His timing is great. And Habib, with his sambo background, tends to grow up with the sense of, I can't let you touch my lapels. That's death. So his chin is high up. And against an accurate counter striker with the deadly left hand, I thought it spelled doom. And it wasn't that I thought Connor would blow past Habib, but if the styles matched up, I favored Connor 60-40. People didn't see Connor winning a dogfight. They thought he would just knock him out eventually if round one or two. How did you see it? It's interesting. I saw the first round going very similar to how the third round of the fight was, where Connor would more or less stick his hand out, get comfortable, make Habib not use to that pressure of moving forward. And as soon as Habib moved, Connor would take a step back and throw a strike, and that would throw him off. I thought that's how the first round would go. And then maybe in the second round, Habib would have some success taking Connor down, similar to how the first round played out. But Connor would find a way to scramble back up, maybe clip him with the punch, similar to how. Habib clipped Connor actually with that big overhand right. And then from there, throw a few punches. And then Herb Dean stops it early because, hey, they got to protect their investment. Who would have thought that not only did it end up Habib dominating this fight from beginning to end and finishing him, but also it was Habib who dropped him and hurt him with strikes while standing. I kind of saw that coming. I think. A lot of people actually saw the first part of your prediction coming true, where Habib would dominate the fight. But the dropping of Connor, that's a bit of a curveball. I think a lot of analysts focus too much on boxing as the template for a good movement. And I think MMA is different. And I think down the line, newer analysts will understand that. In traditional boxing, Footwork, Habib is horrible. But for MMA and his style, he pressures you, he chases you down, but he just starts walking. And it's that walking that confuses you in that he's constantly switching strides. So you're not sure how the takedown is going to come because he's going to naturally incorporate it into his stride. So when you see other boxer wrestlers in MMA and they stay in that stance and then they try to take people down, they don't have nearly the success he does because they're trying to shoot from a wide boxing stance and then convert, whereas he walks you down and that naturally transitions into the penetration step. And that's how he could even get a far ankle pick. He could dive in really deep because he's walking right into it. People thought he was going to run into the left hand, but the way he walks forward is different from other fighters also. Most fighters, when they're chasing after him or coming forward, they lead with their face. Even if they're a good boxer, they slightly lean forward. Like if you're walking or running, you lean forward. 
And even wrestlers, when they're about to shoot, they have to lean and lead with their face because they're getting low and then driving in and shooting. Habib has a very different way, which I think is informed by his combination of wrestling. He knows how to wrestle, but also Sambo. He does what I've seen judo guys do, where he walks forward and leads with his hips. So his face is never ahead of his hips. His hips are forward. So it almost looks like if you watch him, he's walking forward, leading with his feet. So it almost looks like he's leaning back, like he's doing limbo a little bit, which looks like he's sticking his chin forward because he's so straight up and he's not tucking down. But if you tuck down, then you're still kind of leading. You're leading with the top of your head, yes, but he's putting his center of gravity a little bit back. So he's walking forward. Actually, this would be bad posture, but in MMA and for his style work. So he's leading with that so that you can never catch him where his head is in front of his body. So if you do hit him, he was leaning back anyway, but it's hard to hit him because he's coming forward with his hips. So you could see that every time Connor tried to hit him and he did hit him a couple times, but it wasn't able to hit him flush because he wasn't sticking his upper body forward looking for the shot. And the other thing also is Habib, when he walks you forward, he's not walking forward and chasing you while throwing punches. He walks forward, punches, walks forward, punches. So that's why during the fight, he was willing to stand in range with them because he was in range with his feet, but not with his face. And Connor does a really good job of setting traps so that you think you're out of range with your face when you're not. He had Connor swinging and missing constantly, even though Connor has one of the highest striking accuracies, because it looked like Habib was in range when only it was his hips and his feet were in range, but not his face. So it was actually Habib who was dictating the range better than Connor. So he was standing there. And I think that's why he was actually able to land a lot more strikes. If they were boxing, I'm sure Habib would have a horrible time. Habib doesn't know how to box, but he knows how to punch. And he knows how to punch while doing his MMA, meaning his style of MMA, walking forward, leading with his feet and his hips, blading himself so that he's never caught flush. And also understanding that range where he could hit you, you can't hit him. And that's why I actually thought Habib would catch him with punches. I actually thought he was going to hit him with the eagle punch where he ducks down and looks like he's going to shoot. But it was the same difference where Connor didn't understand the range and then Khabib hit him with the overhand. But it was the same kind of thing where he didn't realize that he was close enough to close that distance because Habib doesn't have long arms. People are always surprised that Habib can hit them. When they measure the reach, they don't measure from armpit to the end of your fist. They measure from one fist to the other fist. He just has a very wide chest. So when you look at the tail of the tape, it looks like his reach is longer but he does have short arms. But that's part of why his gas tank is also good because he has a longer torso, so he just has more room for his lungs. Whereas Connor is very compact and he has long arms and legs, which doesn't leave a lot of room in the torso for big lungs. And so I'm sure he works out like a maniac. But with his build, which is more like a daddy long legs, I think cardio is always going to be an issue. One of the things that you mentioned about Habib's striking stance and how he uses his hips and doesn't leave with the face. It is true that it's a Sambo thing because early Andrei Arlovsky and early Fedor Emelianenko fights, they have a similar style and stance where they 
had their hips forward and their head back. It wasn't until Fedor fell in love with Justice Boxing that he started getting in trouble when he started getting hit more. But in his early pride fights, you could see it with Heath Herring, Semi Schilt, and even the first Noguera fight, when the way he fought was very smart. And even though it looked plotting, he would actually walk you down, similar to how Habib does. And even his ground and pound is very Fedor-esque, where he windmills the punches, but it's not from a knee position where he hits you. He arcs his back and he generates full force. Sometimes he's on one knee down, one leg up, both legs up, and he could generate devastating ground and pound. That all comes from the, the hips from judo and samba, where they learn to generate power, not just from their legs, but from the torque they create from their torso. So even from ground and pound, their knees are on the ground. They can't generate power like a boxer where they have to drive off the ground, but they generate power like a judoka where they just start twisting from the hips. And that's why they cast their punches where they throw it like a whip, because that's all blends in with the way judo generates power. It's interesting that you brought up that hook because I'm not sure if listeners are familiar with Igor Vochanchin, but back in the day, he was a terror in pride, especially among the heavyweights. He was a guy... Five foot eight, 220, 225 pounds, but he would absolutely smash with people with what's known as the Russian hook. And then Fedor kind of took that to the next level by combining it with his grappling and ferocious ground and pound. But Vochanchin caught a lot of people with it. He caught Mark Kerr. He caught that one guy who he hit him so hard that as he was falling, he still followed up with punches to the face. Francisco Bueno. There we go. Part of the reason why Igor punched like that also was because he was so short and his arms were so short that for him to reach you with anything other than a straight punch, he had to kind of cast his punch like that. Also, when you brought up Connor's gas tank, it's true everything you said, but what a lot of people don't tend to exploit are the body punches. What Diaz was able to do very well, more so in their second fight than their first, is every time they got in the clinch, he would throw a bunch of quick, hard punches to the gut. Nate threw it to Connor, and that's what seemed to gas him out in that second and third round. And it played a huge factor in the Mayweather fight because Mayweather found that Connor more or less left his midsection unguarded. So he would snipe through with straight punches, and that led to Connor gassing quicker than normal. Because in the beginning, you don't take into account, oh, that's fine, I'll let one or two slip through. But after the 5th, 6th, 10th, 12th one, you start being more guarded, you drop your hands, and that's when Mayweather can come through with this sharp, sharp jab. There was a point where Habib caught him with this murderous hook to Connor's body, and he landed some other body shots in the fight. Connor was also throwing a lot of body shots. I think because Connor knows his gas tank is going to go down, so he's trying to make sure your gas tank is also right there going down with them or even lower than his. He always has a sense of urgency to try to drop your gas tank down with his push kicks, his teeps, knees. It's an investment that'll pay dividends down the line because especially against wrestlers who like to shoot in, the more tired you are, the more sloppy your takedowns and more telegraphed they'll become. So why not put money in that bank where I'll cash in that check later? Now, Habib isn't known as a switch stance fighter, but he is. Whenever he's walking you down, he is switching stances. So you don't know where the shot's going to come. And from that, 
not only does he then disguise his punches because you don't know which is going to be his power side. So that's how he's so effective with that flying knee because he does it in mid-stride and then he jumps into the flying knee, which he caught Connor with after, I think, the overhand. And he's caught a lot of people with that. And I think it's the same way with that hook he does where he's walking forward, he ducks down, looks like he's about to shoot in. And then he just comes forward just like he does with the flying knee. But instead of a flying knee, it's a jumping hook. Even with the overhand, it was happening while he was ducking down. So it looked like a shot. So the principles of it is the same way he catches the flying knee, the eagle punch, and the overhand. Same way. It all looks like he's walking forward into a shot. He's close enough to shoot. He's walking forward. It looks like a shot. So Connor and a lot of people, they plant down at that moment thinking, okay, I'm going to counter-strike this guy. And that's when he hits you. It's not exactly the same fight, but when GSP fought Tiago Alves, it was always widely known that Tiago Alves is the better striker of the two. But because he was always scared of that takedown threat, GSP was able to outstrike him and even drop him at one point. Because so many people are afraid of the takedown, they're able to take advantage of the jab. And Habib has been landing a lot of jabs because people are willing to eat the jab, just like they're willing to eat the jab against GSP, just to avoid the takedown. They're like, well, if I need to eat the jab, I'm not going to get knocked out. But that's how they start getting ahead in the points. But also that's when they start getting into the rhythm. And Habib is landing lots of jabs. It's not like he has the best jab, but he disguises it because he drops his hand. So it's an up jab, which fits perfectly with his hip on stance. Because from that stance where he's so bladed, it's not like he has that stance because he's trying to do the Philly shelf like Floyd Mayweather does. He's not imitating that. It's the only way you could hold your hands if you're going to lead with one hip. And that's why he stands like that. And then that's why he does the up jab. So even though it's not the prettiest boxing, it's more like he started from his principles. What am I good at? And then I'm going to build around that, which is different from what other people do is I'm going to build up from the ground up. And I think that's the good thing about AKA. They don't try to rebuild you. They try to build around what you're already good at, which is why then a lot of their fighters get criticized for not being the most beautiful technique fighters, but they win and whatever they do works for them. Daniel Cormier is not the best striker, but he strikes and beats up good strikers in striking, not just because they're afraid of the takedown, but because how they're able to strike from their wrestling stance. And the one thing that I know all AKA guys tend to do very well is throw that one underhook and use that free hand to start striking, whether it's from the clinch against the fence where they can dig their forehead under the guy's chin, start working the body, start working the top. Cain Velasquez was able to outbox Junior Dos Santos from that position. Daniel Cormier famously did it to Frank Mir. He also knocked out Stipe Miocic recently, especially from that position. So Habib follows that line of thinking with that single underhook where he'll dig his head under. He does it very well from the ground, more so than Daniel or Kane. So that's the common theme that I think unites the AKA guys. I don't know if they're going to outstrike their opponents, but they can out-MMA strike their opponents. A lot of people are still switching phases of their game. Okay, I'm in striking mode. Okay, I'm in boxing mode. Now I'm in wrestling mode. Now I'm in ground fighting mode. Whereas AKA and Habib, they don't do phase changes. 
Everything is from the wrestling stands. So they're beating you in MMA striking because they're always going to be doing MMA. They're not going to be blending from boxing phase to clinch phase to takedown to ground and pound phase. It's all the same thing for them. They're always going to be, well, not all of them, but in particular Habib, where it's all coming from his wrestling and his sambo and his judo. That is his singular phase. And then his striking comes off of it, his knees, his kicks. But I understand why Habib was also so upset. It wasn't just the shit talking leading into the fight and Dylan Dennis talking shit to him during the fight, but also it did feel like UFC was against him. And in the fight, Connor was grabbing Habib's gloves over and over. It was so apparent. And even the announcers talked about it. Connor was grabbing Habib's shorts to prevent the takedown. Connor was grabbing the cage. And even in the final part where Habib gets the back and takes the choke, watch it again. He had to just pry Connor off the cage because Connor was grabbing the cage. It almost looked like Habib was going to be in a bad position on his back because he had to yank him so hard off the cage to break Connor's grip. Well, I think there's also one other infraction that. I think Dominic Cruz called, but some of the team might have missed, where while Connor was on his back, he threw that illegal knee to Habib's face. It was very Frank Shamrock versus Henzo Gracie-esque. and Super illegal. Habib said, hey, but Herb Dean just more or less shrugs like, hey, we got to protect our investment. It all fed into that mindset. It just did look like everything was working against Habib. This guy was blatantly cheating. Habib actually called out the UFC for promoting him, meaning Connor, over the actual champion because Habib's the one who was active in the UFC. He's not the one who took off in 2016 and started a world tour competing in another sport. He's the one that's been actively fighting, trying to campaign for a title shot. So I can see where he felt the disrespect was palpable. What was also interesting was that as the fight was progressing, it was Habib was doing all the shit talking, hitting him, insulting him, calling out Dana, saying, Dana, look what I'm doing to your boy. He totally started sucking Connor's confidence away. And it was Habib who was surging, especially after he knocked him down. And I knew going into this also that Habib wouldn't get so affected by the craziness because I know when he does go to Russia, he's mobbed. Maybe mobbed more than Connor's ever been mobbed in Ireland. So I think that really prepared him for the chaos. And also, I was thinking about Darren Till versus Tyron Woodley, where people had Till as the favorite. But same thing. It was Woodley dropping him with punches, controlling him on the ground, and then finishing him with the choke. I think people are still in the old mindset of he's a wrestler who knows how to phase change into boxing when he needs to. And I think Woodley and Habib are both guys who know how to punch while wrestling. So sometimes the guy who knows how to punch while wrestling is a better MMA striker than the guy who knows how to punch while boxing. Because both are informed by other sports. So your base is boxing coming into MMA striking. This guy's base is wrestling coming into MMA striking, but ultimately it's still MMA striking. It's not just the fact that they're afraid of the takedown. 
It's also the fact that the stance looks weird. The angle looks weird. The punches are coming from unusual angles. All of that messes people up. So it's the old adage, the punch you don't see coming is the one that hurts. And because they're able to punch from a different base, a lot of times they are able to catch people by surprise. That doesn't mean they can't get outstruck, but they have a few tricks up their sleeves that a lot of people aren't used to. Habib doesn't finish a ton of people with submissions, but that's not the only way you grade grappling. And I think he is by far the best MMA grappler we've seen in the UFC, even better than Damian Maya. Damian Maya is better at jiu-jitsu, but overall grappling, meaning I can not only take you down, but control you. Damian Maya is one of the best at finishing and controlling, but he's been taken down. He's been controlled on the ground by like Jake Shields and Rory McDonald. We haven't seen that with Habib. He's not going to submit you, but he will always outgrapple you. Habib's next biggest fight is going to be against the Nevada State Athletic Commission and making sure his suspension is reduced and his fine isn't crazy. I think he's also going to have a fight against Trump supporters who are going to say he went full jihad. Who do you think at lightweight has the best shot at dethroning Habib? There are several people. I think Tony Ferguson has to be up there. I think Kevin Lee. If Max Holloway comes up, I think he has a good shot too. So it's interesting that you mentioned Tony Ferguson because he also fought on this card against Anthony Pettis. What were your thoughts on the fight? I think going into this, most people picked Tony Ferguson to win because it looks like people not only have figured out how to beat Anthony Pettis, but also the sport is evolving, but Anthony Pettis is not evolving with the sport. Out of the top five or even top 10 fighters in the UFC among lightweights, Tony Ferguson is probably the only guy there that Pettis had a realistic shot at being able to beat because defensively he does move forward and get tagged pretty often Pettis can hit you and drop you at any moment like he did in this fight and Tony tends to get wild and sloppy and that's where Pettis can capitalize but we all saw how the fight played out I was surprised that Tony came back so early after total knee surgery yeah he did in five months Ferguson said He didn't get any physical therapy after the surgery. He did his own physical therapy. And then he made mention of this in the past when he said, I'm going to go in the hyperbaric time chamber. I'm going to channel my inner Vegeta. I'm going to be able to win through. When he got dropped by Pettis, he went full Super Saiyan right afterwards. And then he just mauled him. Yeah, because it seemed to activate something within him where he previously was okay with just beating you. But now he had to finish you. What was interesting also is that he hasn't sparred in four years. Which I actually kind of like. There's a lot of fighters now who don't spar and they still win. Because... Ferguson said the same thing. He said, I need to save my brain cells for the fight. I think more fighters should take that approach because I know Robbie Lawler famously took years off sparring and when he came back, he looked phenomenal. And it might be attributed to his increased fight IQ, 
his longevity because of less wear and tear on his body. Vanderlei Silva and all those guys, they gave all their miles in training. That's one of the criticisms about American Kickboxing Academy. Even though they're the winningest team in MMA, they're known for their notorious sparring and how much of the injuries come from their sparring and their training. Didn't they recently revamp their training style where the moment somebody is hurt, they take them off rotation and then they say, you're done for X amount of weeks until you get better? They're learning from their mistakes. So they are evolving. And that's fine. Then that, and that's why they stay winning. They had a winning formula. It worked. And then they're evolving to make sure the fighters are healthy. And to go back to Tony Ferguson and Pettis, I thought one of the more interesting technical things that Tony was doing was he never let Pettis get comfortable. He would switch stances like we talked about. And Pettis was just whiffing at air because he had no idea which strike Tony would hit him with next. And Duke Rufus made an interesting comment in between rounds one and two when he said, when Tony throws a kick, go into it and throw a punch and that's what's going to hurt him. Lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. As soon as Tony threw a kick, Pettis timed it and dropped him with the punch. I was kind of worried for Ferguson when he ate a kick and he started limping and you could tell it was bothering him. And he was limping on the leg that he just had surgery on. I was thinking that maybe that was going to affect the fight, but Tony doesn't care. He was limping, but he kept coming forward and started pacing him. And the thing about Pettis is he's like a sniper, but he needs space and time to aim and shoot. But Tony is like a machine gun. He gets right in there, puts you in a phone booth, and then just starts coming after you. But the moment that Pettis found success was when, when Ferguson started having fun, where he was opening up, where not everything he was throwing was supposed to hurt. He was now going for style points. And that was just enough time for Pettis to aim and strike, and it hurt him right away. And the way Ferguson recovered was crazy because he started doing all these somersaults and rolls to prevent further damage. And he also caught him with some elbows, I think, from the bottom, from standing. But right when they got back up, Ferguson stopped fucking around. He went right back to pacing him. And pace is the amount of moves and strikes you do in an MMA fight. Pettis has never been known for pace. He's more of a single shot fighter. So he aims and strikes. He doesn't want to throw anything unless he thinks he's going to hit. When he starts throwing wild exchanges, he's not even aiming anymore. So what people figured out is you just pace this guy and have him fighting going backwards and you never give him a chance to aim or think about it, then you're going to be able to beat this guy because everything he does is so reactionary. Either you need to give him time and space to aim or he'll do something athletic, but it's more of a reflex action like some of his kicks or or anything else. But he's not good on the fly thinking of stuff to do. I don't know how much of it is Pettis not finding ways to evolve and just laying an egg in there or how much of it is Duke not constantly making sure his fighters are evolving because he doesn't seem to have this type of problem with Tyron Woodley. Tyron has a lot better fight IQ and Tyron does his own camps. So he's training himself. Duke is one of the guys he brings in, but he has coach, I think, Eric Brown, who helps him with boxing and his boxing movement. Pettis is somebody who fights out of a kickboxing stance and he doesn't actually have good footwork. That's interesting too, because I don't think for Tyron Woodley, 
he still has an MMA coach in Dean Thomas, but Pettis might just you rely on Duke for everything. Yeah. So it's a very different thing where Tyron said it himself. He runs his camp like it was a business and he's the CEO and he's putting everything together. And Duke is a part of that. Whereas with Pettis, Duke is the CEO and he leaves it to him to figure everything out. You know, it's interesting. Another person that shares that mentality with Tyron is Tony Ferguson because he's the head of his own camp. He brings in the people that he wants and he runs conditioning workouts, striking, grappling the way he thinks it should go as opposed to having a head coach dictating, no, this is what we're going to do. This is how you're going to do it. Christine Cyborg does the same thing. I think more fighters should follow that mold. It's not the most cost effective, but I think if you want to be a champion, you have to start training and preparing like a champion. But to echo your point about how we talked earlier about fighting going in phases, it seems that Pettis is a guy who never developed the middle phase of how to deal with guys when they shoot in. He's never had the best wrestling or the style of takedown defense necessary. You saw early glimpses of it when Gilbert Melendez fought Pettis. Luckily, Pettis was able to have an excellent submission game and choke Gilbert Melendez. But RDA saw that and says, okay, if I kept that up, had a better pace, I'm able to frustrate him against the cage, I'm going to be able to have success. And afterwards, fighters have that make or break moment where they go back to their camp and think, what weaknesses do I need to shore up? Where do I need to fortify my defenses? And Pettis never really did that. I don't know if that's a Duke Rufus issue or if that's Pettis hitting his athletic ceiling. But it's one of those things where it's almost rinse and repeat, where they don't have to use the same style to beat you. Against the fence, Pettis is hard-pressed to tap that creative juice where he's able to think of things on the fly. I wonder if Anthony Pettis' days fighting in the top five are over. Absolutely. I think Anthony Pettis has kind of become like a stage boss where they're difficult at first until you figure out the pattern, which is like punch, punch, body shot, body shot, punch, punch, body shot, you know, like in Mike Tyson's punch out. And so people have figured out the combo to beat Pettis. And so once you figure out that combo in a fighting game, that stage boss is now super easy to beat. If you beat Showtime, you're ready for the big time. Yeah, I wouldn't say he's Glass Joe. But he's... I think in the Street Fighter mode, he would be Vega. He's Mm. that guy you beat that's flashy, that jumps all over the place. Off the cage, too. Yeah. But if you can find a way to neutralize that and corner him and beat the fuck out of him and you can take him down, then he's not really much of a threat anymore. And Vega is one of those guys where even after you memorize the combo to beat him, he's still hard. He's not like an automatic win because some of his attacks are still super tricky. Yeah, so at that point, Pettis doesn't necessarily become a physical matchup. It becomes more of a test of your fight IQ. Like, can you pass this test? Let's see what you got. And actually, that's the key takeaway about Anthony Pettis that I think he's been criticized for is his fight IQ. He's not somebody who can adapt well in the fight and make reads on the fly and correct his course. He's not a Max Holloway. He's also not somebody who game plans well for the opponent. He comes out always doing him. He doesn't create a strategy of how to beat the other guy. He's going to fight the same regardless of who he fights. 
So let's move on to the next fight, Ovin St. Pru or OSP for short against Dominic Reyes. Now, this fight really caught my eye because, as you know, light heavyweight, while traditionally has been UFC's marquee division, has been stagnant as of late to it say the least. Now. It sucks. Yeah, it sucks. But Dominic Reyes, I thought, provided a breath of fresh air into the division. And it's good to see Joe Daddy working again. I was curious to see what kind of trainer he is. And now that I've seen him coach other fighters and this guy, he seems like he's a very good coach. I think the initial stances that both guys took, which was Southpaw, was very interesting. Because OSP comes out Southpaw and Dominic Reyes met him in that regard. But as soon as Dominic Reyes started striking and giving him different looks, OSP went orthodox real quick. Dominic Reyes is a true Southpaw. So he has that southpaw advantage. In MMA, the southpaw always comes in with an advantage in that they have way more rounds fighting conventional fighters than conventional fighters have fighting left-handed southpaw fighters. Dominic Reyes is so athletic. He actually had OSP shooting first. And even though he's not the traditional wrestler, his quick hips as well as aggressive strikes while defending takedowns, whether it's knees or elbows to the head, had OSP second-guessing another shot. Watching the first stanza of the fight, I noticed something interesting in that Reyes was striked simultaneously at the same time OSP was throwing a strike. So every time he saw OSP throwing a kick, he threw a kick. When OSP threw a punch, he threw a punch because he was trying to break up OSP's rhythm because OSP is not a pace fighter. He's a rhythm fighter. And as soon as OSP couldn't get into a groove because Reyes was jamming him with strikes. OSP didn't feel comfortable anymore and started shooting for takedowns. And after that, he became so much more hesitant because he didn't know how to get into his rhythm anymore. After a while, OSP was simply reacting to what Reyes was doing. Also, OSP has never been known as a good defensive fighter. Part of the reason why he knocks people out is because he has such long arms that he throws them like whips. So just like a whip, if you whip something, you're not exactly sure where the end is going to land. So when he throws those arms like a whip, you're not exactly sure which angle is going to come so people get knocked out by him. But in the same way, when he blocks, he also starts blocking like his arms are whips. So they start flailing all over the place. So Dominic Reyes was just able to just punch right through his arms because they were not in good defensive position. He wasn't moving his head. He was just flailing his arms. And the other thing about OSP is his legs. He has two left legs. They're all over the place. So every time they were all over the place or OSP was caught standing square, which he does all the time, Reyes punished them with leg kicks. Reyes was acutely aware of where his right foot is at all times. So after a while, OSP would switch to orthodox and Reyes always made sure that his right foot was on the outside of OSP's left foot, which set him up beautifully every time for that left straight. So not only is he eating it, but he's also eating it from somebody who has the full torque advantage. And you see this when Manny Pacquiao fought De La Hoya, whenever Lomachenko fights, that discipline of making sure that the outside foot is always there to dominate you so that left straight comes in even more punishing than normal. Reyes is one of those fighters, kind of like the opposite of Habib, where he fights out of a kickboxing or boxing stance. And within that stance, he has very good footwork. 
that's the thing. A lot of people, when they try to be the wrestler boxer, they will try to learn how to box in a boxing stance and then wrestle from a wrestling stance. Habib and other fighters like him who are really good at takedowns, they learn to box or punch from a wrestling stance. But the opposite of that is you don't need to be in a wrestling stance if you're just trying to strike and avoid the takedowns. So for Reyes, he stayed in a boxing stance and he was able to avoid the takedowns of OSP because he doesn't rely on a sprawl. He's one of those guys who relies on footwork to avoid the takedowns. So every time he came, he moved out of the way, he pivoted, he turned. And that's why he was also able to land a lot of those strikes because when OSP tried to bum rush him, not only did he move out of the way, but his feet were always in a position to fire back. Like Anderson Silva, he uses his footwork and his strikes to avoid the takedowns by creating space, angling, and punishing them. I don't know how good his wrestling is, but you could avoid that whole mess with good footwork and having a good stance to have good footwork. So for him, because he's not chasing takedowns, that type of running and wrestling stance would be terrible for him because that means you want to wrestle the other guy. That stance is a great usage for counter-striking and countering the takedown. I think the last 10 seconds of that fight perfectly encapsulate what you just said, where Reyes used beautiful head movement to duck under a punch, angled and pivoted out, used his reach to fully extend the left hand, dropped OSP right as the bell sounded. I thought it was a KO. That was terrible. That should have been a KO. But, you know, I have to be understanding of refs because they got a million rules to memorize. And not only that, in MMA, those rules keep changing and they sometimes change by the state. So I could just see them having brain farts in there and they don't remember. Is this considered a KO or is it not? Because maybe that rule changed. So they're human. They're not going to remember all of it. Yeah, and I think John Anik also pointed out that because they're fighting in Nevada, they haven't adopted instant replay yet. So I could see Dan Murglio thinking, do we have that? Do we not? Wait, what should I do? And then the fight was already over. But with that said, OSP was clearly knocked out and he kept telling him to get up. The referee is telling a fighter who's completely out and the referee is supposed to protect him. He's telling him to get up. It was so stupid. But that knockout also reminded me a lot of Stipe Miocic and Cody Garbrandt, who actually those two used to train together back in Ohio, which actually is known for a lot of boxing. A lot of great boxers have come out of that state. But Reyes used great footwork where he slipped under a strike and then his feet were in good position to fire back, which we've seen with Cody where he ducks under a punch and then nails you. And the same thing with Stipe, especially against Verdum, where he avoided the strikes and then his feet were in position to still strike back. And the same thing with Reyes. And unlike Pettis, not only is he avoiding the strikes, but his feet are still underneath him to strike back. Pettis is really bad at that. He just starts running backwards and he can't strike back. And his younger brother, Sergio, has the same problem. And unfortunately for Sergio, who just lost to Jusie Formiga, People have had years to watch Anthony Pettis. People already know his style because he still fights similar to his brother. And so he's always going to have that disadvantage. This is a bit of an aside, but I thought it was interesting that John Attic randomly plugged Air Asia 
in between color commentary, and it was at he was a shill. It was at the weirdest time. It says Air Asia. Now everyone can fly, and you could tell at that moment Joe Rogan and Dominic Cruz had no idea how to respond to that. So there was a second or two of dead air where they said, "And and now." So Mike Goldberg, as much shit as people give him, was actually pretty natural at bringing up and plugging a sponsor. But John Anik just sounds like he got a cue from somebody at top's like, hey, you got to talk about Air Asia. And then he has no setup. He just says Air Asia. They're both of the same generation of commentating. But Joe Rogan is so popular for other stuff he does. Mike Goldberg didn't have that fan base. They're like, no, you got to keep this guy. So Joe Rogan kept his job because he has a huge fan base. Mike Goldberg has maybe 10 fans. So of course, out of the two, he's the one who's going to get replaced. Mike Goldberg should have started a podcast when he saw it coming, the Mike Goldberg experience. But when they have too much of that broadcaster voice, for some reason, it doesn't sound good in podcasts. That's true. It sounds like you're more of like a radio host. Yeah, it doesn't sound authentic. So moving on, and I thought this was one of the best fights I've seen in a long time, especially in the heavyweight division. Derek Lewis versus Alexander Volkov. It was a typical Derek Lewis fight. Gassing, getting his ass kicked, and then Black Beast did what Black Beast does. Fuck it. And he went full beast mode and just knocked him out. I thought this fight is how Rocky IV should have gone in the beginning, where Apollo Creed just knocks out Ivan Drago after getting his ass whooped. And maybe that's what Derek Lewis really channeled. Not that note from President Trump saying, hey, you got to knock out this Russian. They've been making us look bad. It's this is for Apollo. Because <laughs> Alexander Volkov hit Derek Lewis with some heavy shots. And the last time a Russian hit a black guy that hard, Drago killed Apollo Creed. <laughs> Derek Lewis going to Derek Lewis. And I think... If I'm not mistaken, he might be the first fighter in UFC history to take his shorts off in the octagon. Yeah, what did he say when he took it off? When Joe Rogan asked, why'd you take your shorts off? He said, because my balls are hot. Hot balls sucks. And I think from a technical standpoint, Volkov had a lot of success switching stances, moving laterally, and it was frustrating Derek Lewis. And the time he got caught was when he threw that intercepting knee, similar to what Donald Cerrone does all the time. But Derek Lewis just ate it, came at him with an overhand, and that was it. That's all she wrote. Derek Lewis has his own version of Super Saiyan, where it's the great equalizer. Actually, in most fights, the other guy is always the more technical, better fighter. But he gets you to a point where none of that matters. When he goes full Black Beast mode, it's done. Not only that, but Volkov was right to be cautious the entire fight. And he thought, oh, it's winding down. I got 30 seconds left. I should be okay. Never the case. You can never sleep on Black Beast. He thought Black Beast mode had an expiration time where it's like, oh, third round is expired. You can't do that anymore. And Black Beast can do that to the very end of the fight. And I think he knocked him out with 10 seconds left or something, right? In the whole fight. If he would have survived that, he could have won the decision still, even with that. He could have. That's absolutely true. When uh, Joe asks him, at this point, shouldn't you call for the title? And Black Beast is like, title? <laughs> Did you see my cardio? <laughs> my black ass needs to get on a treadmill. I need to work on my gas tank. Like He was so honest that he's not ready for five rounds. 
I think it also speaks volumes of why people like him and like watching him fight. Yeah, there isn't much more to say about that fight. It was uh, a bunch of stuff. Another guy was winning and then Black Beast did Black Beast. And then afterwards, he did more Black Beast with his funny color commentary about himself. We have to talk about Gray Maynard. This is a guy who fought for the title a couple times and now is fighting on like the early prelims or something. But either way, he's fighting Nick Lentz, who's a gamer, who's also has the southpaw advantage, and he's also a pace fighter. But the thing I noticed about Gray is he turned gray. A lot of fighters in MMA, even if they're not that old, and I think for Gray, he actually started much later in life, so he is getting old for a fighter. But even if you're not, it's not that you slow down. There's a lot of slow fighters who still do well. It's the fact that they start freezing. And I think that's a sign of just too much damage to the brain. You saw this with Nate Marquardt. You saw this with Jake Ellenberger. The reason why Randy Couture was able to fight for so long was because he did slow down, but he never froze. His mind was always about him and his body kept moving if he told it to move. Whereas these guys just have like those brain fart moments where they get hit or the guy's doing something and their body just freezes it can't compute all their information that they're receiving. And you see that a lot in boxing where people have taken too many shots to the head and their circuits are fried. Yeah, the neurons aren't firing as quickly. And like you brought up with Randy Couture, he might move slow, but he's always been more or less kind of slow. So it's no real surprise. He's no. been able to keep a consistent pace. And that's why Gray here, he gets hit, he gets dropped, those moments where he just freezes. And that's when you know the fighter has aged is when they just stop. They're just literally having a senior moment. And what is a senior moment? It's that brief neurological shutdown where I don't know. I don't know what's going on for a second. And in a fight, you're getting all this information. The crowd, you're trying to pay attention to yourself and what your opponent's doing. And you just can't figure out what's happening. And that's when you get hurt. Whether Gray realizes it or not, it's over. It's like Fist of the North Star. You're dead. You just haven't realized it yet. <laughs> and I think that's what happened to his body. His mind keeps saying, I could fight. I'm still there. But his body's not there. His reflexes aren't there. And actually, in a lot of ways, his mind isn't there either. I think it might take another five or six fights for him to fully realize he needs to retire. And then a lot of these guys leave to smaller promotions and keep fighting. <laughs> There's always Bellator. It's too late for you. You're already dead. The hell are you talking about? <laughs> what the fuck? No. Let's wrap this up. My balls are hot. 